Join us for the 45th meeting of the Animal Fan Club. I'm Krabby Friend Mike. And I'm the parrot with the party hat, Meredith. We meet every week at our clubhouse we like to call the Dalmatian Station. Arf, arf, arf! To talk about our favorite animals. What we lack in expertise, we make up for in unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow! So, saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight for the furriest, Finfield and Feathered Podcast in all of the Kingdom Animalia. Hey, Meredith, how you doing? I am okay. How are you, Mike? I'm also okay. I think I'm. I mean, I don't know. I'm. I'm pretty good, I guess, considering you know. Yeah, I mean, my my body, my my family, my mind, we're all good. But I can't say the same for like the state of my living room right now because <laughs> clearly something has died. Like in the wall. Oh no! Or like under or behind something, and I'm like really afraid to like go searching for it. But I was laying on the couch yesterday, and I just like just got that hint, that faint hint of like if you smelled it, you know it. It's like death, and it's being that I live in a small New York apartment. It's probably rodent related. Also, being that it's like cooler out, we have the windows open and I think the flies are like flying in on the scent of carrion and um just buzzing, buzzing their little butts off. Some of these buzzers are so freaking loud. Clearly have like a few different species of fly. You know, maybe this is just payback for only covering the lowly house fly last week. But man, there are some loud freaking flies that have been zooming around our living room looking for some carrion to walk around on. Yeah, I think that maybe you're just more tuned into the fly experience now that you've considered the fly so I really am. deeply. I really am. And I couldn't like the thought of trying to like chase them and kill them like didn't even cross my mind. How could I? Sure, sure. Despite their status as a disease vector. But whatever, I'll overlook that for now. And in the meantime, I will write my carrion diaries and hope the spell goes away soon. See, that's a brand clubby commercial, Carrie and Diaries. I know. It just popped into my head. And I was like, I could probably run with this. And maybe I still will. Meredith, that reminds me of a time when I was taking college classes during the summer. Because, you know, I did my ridiculous dual degree thing in undergrad. So I had to do mm-hmm. summer school like every year for four summers. Ugh. And my first summer between freshman and sophomore year, I was back in Cleveland taking classes downtown. And then rather than drive the half hour back to where my parents lived, I would sometimes just drive like 10 minutes and hang out at my aunt and uncle's house, even if they weren't there because they were working, you know, it was just a place to hang out. Mm -hmm. And one time I found a dead mouse in between the couch cushion and like the base of the couch. Oh, no. And I drew a map on how to get like how to find it because I was like, I don't know how to clearly say where this is. I didn't have the right words. So I drew a map and my aunt was very tickled by the dead mouse treasure map. Oh gosh. Now that just made me realize it might be in the couch. Well, just check under the cushion or, you know, you do live with a boy who is 
I don't know if not squeamish <laughs> is really the right description for him. Let's just say I will be dealing with this when it's <laughs> time to deal with it. And we'll say no more. <laughs> that works for me. So I'm just trying to delay the inevitable at the moment. I'm just really trying to like prepare myself over a period of a few days. Uh-huh. But yeah, I really should check the couch cushions because then that could like, I don't want it in the cushions. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably not. Okay. There. Thank you. You're welcome. Ew. Ew, Mike. Creatures can be icky sometimes, right? Yeah, totally. <sighs> totally. Um, well, Meredith, my week in animals was not nearly as exciting. I think the <sighs> most noteworthy thing that happened is I am in this Facebook group where sometimes we pretend that we're crabs, but mostly it's just about crustacean memes. It's called crustacean memes for crabby friends. Wait, really? Is it kind of? Yeah. I was wondering if you're going to be like, I'm in that Facebook group where we're ants and we protect the queen at all costs. It has elements that are similar. Like occasionally somebody's posts a picture of a crab and it's like, oh, this crab needs you to say pinch for support or whatever. Yes. It does sound very similar. And so I responded with pinch to a post and the poster liked my comment. And that brought me a lot of joy. Ah, you're crab famous. I know, but it's really fun. The celebrity crabs include Reginald and (laughs) Richard and then Santiago, who's been getting a lot of play lately. Santiago's been very popular lately. That's a great crab name. It's a great crab name, yeah. It's just a lot of fun. I'm into these crustacean memes. And then, Meredith, when I sat down to work on this episode last night, my roommate has been watching a lot of sitcoms from like the 90s and 2000s lately oh yeah and so he was watching the show girlfriends oh yeah circa 2004 like season four i think and they cut to this one scene where they were in a park and there were 15 extras in the back and then 15 dog extras like playing (laughs) with you know it was 15 dogs and their handlers in the background of the scene it was the most intense dog experience you have ever seen on camera. There was just so much dog joy and that made me really happy. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, normally you wouldn't expect like in an, a normal park, the dog to human ratio to be like one to one. But I do love a world where that's possible. The world of girlfriends. Right. And all engaged in active play, you know, <laughs> like great. small scale active, like jump around with the dog. Like the dogs aren't really running far. They're totally just engaged with their handlers. That is so funny. Because, you know, there's always that dog in the dog park that just wants to sit on the bench. Right. Or cowers in the corner. And then there's like your more rambunctious dogs. But to have 15, like all active play engaged dogs was really funny yeah it was definitely hilarious it was just like oh they're at the dog park you can just imagine the writers being like so we need them to be at the park and we need there to be dogs and then the production people are just like well we should probably get like 15 dogs you know right just being like okay just signing off on it right and sliding it down you know and in this era where everything is maybe a bit more budget-minded Yeah, is in terms of, you know, how many people you would hire for a day like that, Mm -hmm. where it would probably be maybe like one handler and two dogs. You know what I mean? Right. It was just really fun to see that much activity (laughs) on the screen. That is great. That's like a PA with too much power and too much dog love, if there is such thing. Right. That's like (laughs) a PA that goes to this dog play activity group. And just called all of their dog friends and was like, dude, come be in the back of the shot. It's cool. We have carte blanche on budget. 
<laughs> it's the early aughts. Yeah, I can give you $5,000 to show up with your dog. <laughs> I have a $150,000 dog budget for this one shot. Oh, to be to be in the cushy budget of girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pre-writer's strike. Right. Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, man. Well, so as to not steal content from our other podcast about the show Girlfriends, <laughs> maybe we should... Continue with the task at hand. Yeah, let's kick it off with the old taxonomy cheer. Ready? Okay. Taxonomy, you. Taxonomy, we. Taxonomy, who. Taxonomy. Kingdom. Animalia. Be they cute or be they icky. Phylum. Cordata. Show that spine some love. Class. Mammalia. Fuzzy, milky, live birth. Order. Parasodactyla, odd-toed undulates, hooves up. Family. Tapiridae, pig-shaped with a longer snout. Genus. Tapirus, take another look at that nose trunk. Species. Tapirus indicus, the largest of its genus and the only one in Asia. It's the Malayan tapir. Oh, how exciting. You know, when you say, when you do the artiodactyla, you can do the hoof suff, which is kind of like a Spock. But the parasodactyla is just the odd toad, so that's just the middle finger. It's but, just, yeah. But with the tapir, it's almost like a Spock with the middle finger because they got three toes. Well, no, well, no, you're not wrong. But this is actually a really interesting fact Uh-oh. that, um, and I'll get into this a little bit more um, in a moment when I'm going through tax facts because they actually have four toes on the front and three in the back, so they actually have fourteen toes total. That's a isn't that weird? Strange number. Yeah. But I'll explain it. Please. Just you wait. <laughs> I'm I'm ready. I've actually wanted to do this animal for ye- for years. We haven't been doing this for years yet. It's almost been a year. It's been like ten months. I know we're getting very close. But I've always kind of had tapirs in the back of my mind, and I've just been kind of intrigued by them because they are one of I would say like one of the odder looking animals in the animal pantheon. Sure. And I love those. Um, So here we are. We're finally doing it. So we'll just quickly go through some tax facts and we'll touch on um, the toe issue right now. Um, So order Parasodactyla. We both love it when undulates come up. Mike's pro undulate squad. Mike's giving me the uh, universal Parasodactyla symbol of (laughs) two middle fingers right up in the air. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love a rebrand. It's like we're taking back the bird. We're taking back the offensive middle finger and we're reclaiming it for the Parasodactyla squad, in which case we're just throwing our hooves up when we flash the bird. I throw my hooves up at drivers all the time here in the great borough of Queens. <laughs> I bet you do. I can't. Oh, gosh. I'm, I'm, I'm showing my hoof to a lot of spoilers as they drive away. <laughs> Aftermarket spoilers, mind you. Okay, so we've got parasodactyla, which means odd-toed undulates. And I get a little bit confused because, like, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, so they've got three toes versus four toes versus two toes. But it's really not, like, it doesn't work that way. And I know we've discussed this before, but um, it's all about where the weight is placed. So even if we have, say, a tapir, which is an odd-toed undulate, parasodactyla, and then I say they have four toes on their front legs. That's a little, I was initially like, wait, what? I don't get it. But it's actually that they, the majority of their weight is placed on the third toe as opposed to 
our artiodactyla even-toed undulate friends where the weight is placed on two toes, the third and the fourth. So it's about, is the weight distributed across one toe or is it distributed across two? So on the tapir's front hooves, the majority of their weight is on their third toe, which would be like the middle finger, essentially. Yes. And then they have two toes on one side of that and one toe on the other side of that, which they use ostensibly for balance. Yes. The thing is, is that it does kind of loosely relate to how many toes there are total, total toes. Toe toes. Because some of those toes may be, um, have, they've evolved away. So there probably was a fifth at one point. Right. And so now there's just like a vestigial one or it's completely missing. So it's like the number of toes themselves, that's not, you can't really go by that because a lot of times they've just evolved themselves out of practice or they're like tiny um, and kind of placed somewhere where they're not going to be necessarily used for balance. I think that's the case with like the warthog. Yeah, it's an interesting toe journey. I'd say. And I was happy to get that clarification because I, I was a little bit thrown by the odd toe distribution <laughs> with the taper friends. So now we can move on to family and genus. So both the family and the genus contain four of the extant species of tapirs. Um, And those including, so we're talking about the Malayan tapir, but there's also the Brazilian tapir, the Baird's tapir, and the mountain tapir. And those occupy the family and the genus. Okay, Malayan as in like Malaysia? Yeah, exactly. And what's so interesting about the Malayan tapir is it's the only species that's found in Asia. The other three are found in Central America, um, up into Mexico, and then down into Brazil. And I believe it's the Baird's tapir is actually the national animal of Belize. Oh. So it's a very interesting um, evolutionary thing in that we have very similar creatures that look actually pretty similar and are very similar in a lot of ways. So a lot of the information that I'll be talking about will apply to all four species, despite the fact that they're separated by so much space, really. Like, geographically, they're so far apart. So they they originated in what was essentially North America, or essentially they were across the Northern Hemisphere, but they diverged. So some went to North America and some were in Asia, 20 to 30 million years ago. Whoa. And then thir- 3 million years ago, the ones in North America gradually migrated down into Central and South America. So they are a very old species. And I, what I find very interesting is that there hasn't been much in the way of like crazy evolutionary changes between the American species versus the Asian species. I'm surprised they're in the same genus. Right. Yeah, it's rare that you'll have that. Because typically it's an old, you know, a so-called old world, new world division. Although I feel like also generally Asian species, like East Asian species and Southeast Asian species are treated as a different uh, category as well. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, It's. I found this all to be so like fascinating in terms of how little change really there is amongst all of them. The Asian species is the largest and its coloration is slightly different. But beyond that, it's a lot of the appearance and a lot of the basic workings of this creature and behaviors are going to be very similar. So we can go a bit into that appearance. Let's do it. Yeah. So all of the Central and South American species are 
predominantly just dark brown, like solid dark brown. Whereas the Malayan tapir actually looks like it has a little white blanket that kind of goes from its shoulders back to its rump. So they've got a big old white spot on their back, which you can always tell a Malayan tapir because one, they're going to be bigger. And two, they've got their little white blankie on their back. Adorable. (laughs) And it's said to help with camouflage because it essentially kind of breaks up the form of the tapir. So like say it's sleeping in low light. Um, and you see like this big white thing on it, it's harder to distinguish the full form of a tapir. It almost looks like there's like a rock or something there where the white is. Sure. So it helps with camouflage. Additionally, so I did mention that they do look pig-like. They're pig-shaped, but they have a much, much longer snout, which we'll talk about momentarily. But I did just want to touch on their length. They can go from about like six feet, just under six feet to eight feet long which is really long. It's so much bigger than I thought. It's pretty long. And they stand um, from about like just under three feet to just over like three and a half feet tall. Okay. So it's like a quadruped. For some reason in my head, I just imagine the tapir as like up on its hind two legs, but obviously <laughs> that's wish. not the case. So I just that need to understand amazing. like the morphology of this. Yes. So it's, we have a quadruped with its... It's a quadruped with the four toes on the front and the three toes on the back. Yes. And it's about three feet off the ground. Yeah. And you said about six or seven feet long. Is that like nose to tail? Yeah. The tails are very short and stubby. It's like a tiny little tail. So it's like nose. Or actually, I think they exclude the prehensile nose. But like essentially like. What's going on with its neck? Is it kind of like a quine? Like, does it kind of come up or is it more like a pig? It's or... more pig-like. Okay. Yeah, it's more pig-like than equine, though, because it is parasodactyla. It's in the same order. It's very much related to, like, horses, zebras, equus. Well, and rhinos, too. Maybe the... And rhinos, exactly. Maybe I should consider the rhino when I consider the tape here in terms of just, like, scale down a rhino. Yes. Yeah, and actually the neck, like, the kind of the relationship of the neck to the body is very similar in that, like, it's not, like, a very long, like, horse neck, horsey neck. (laughs) It's kind of stout, I would say. Sure. Yeah. More built for football. So now we can talk about what we are all here for which is the very long and flexible proboscis, the prehensile nose trunk of the tapir. It's probably most, it's, it's most characteristic feature. Yes. So it's essentially in the, it's the longest on the Malayan tapir. And it essentially kind of looks like a really, really short elephant trunk that just kind of hangs off the front of its face. Uh huh. And kind of wobbles around as they walk. But they essentially use it like other prehensile appendages, like prehensile meaning it's able to like grasp onto things. Think of monkeys with their prehensile tails, which are able to like wrap around and grip onto stuff. So the tapir, tapir uses its prehensile nose to kind of grab vegetation, out of reach vegetation and stuff like that um, because they are obligate herbivores. Uh-huh. They love fruits. They love their veggies. They love tender little root shoots. And obligate means that they only eat vegetables. Yeah. So they are vegetarians. Exclusively. Yes. Though their teeth are super duper sharp. And they also have that sagittal crest, which is often found in animals. We talked about it with the sea lion. 
but they've got this sagittal crest that um, you find in animals that have a really strong bite. So actually the tapir itself has a very strong bite, despite the fact that it's not ever tearing like other animals' flesh. It's only just tearing the tender flesh of a fruit. <laughs> uh-huh. Do you think those teeth developed as like a defense thing or do you think yeah. the vegetation? Oh, it did. Oh, It's well, um, we defensive. Think yeah, it's defensive and or they think it is defensive against predators. And they have been known actually to maul some humans at times, though they are, they're very solitary and they're generally pretty scared and they don't really want to scrap with things if they don't have to. But there are some instances where in captivity, people have been mauled by tapirs. Sure. Yeah. So I shouldn't laugh, but it's just, they're so. They're a little goofy looking, you know? Yeah. They don't really seem super dangerous, but they are. Okay. So I just do want to talk about. I want to talk about one thing that I think has come up before. might have been um, with your Kiang is what I'm assuming, but this idea of... Yes, the giant wild ass. Yes. Or, well, the largest wild ass, I believe. Yes. Also, Parasodactyla. So they might share some yeah, traits. who's up? Who's up? <laughs> He's flipping me off again. I love it. <laughs> um, so it's this... I, this thing called the Flamin response. Do you remember this? I do. I think... I, I do remember it. I think this was in relation to tigers that we talked about it, but I can't remember what it is. Oh, that could be too. Yeah. It's it's also predominant in um, felids as well. So cats, both little and big cats. It's um, essentially where the, the animal will curl up its upper lip. It's like cur- it'll curl it up and then they inhale and they show their teeth. Uh-huh. You see it a lot with horses. Horses do this a lot. You see it with dogs when they smell something they don't really like. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it, <laughs> like it can be used it. to, like, <laughs> I, I think I remember it. Mm, this is a little foggy. It might have been the Kiang or it might have been the Tiger, but I think you're right. Both I think it was would the, work. I think it was both, maybe. And they did it as also as a way of, like, smelling it, like, because yes. it opens exactly. up their cavities, so it increases their sensitivity. And if you kind of do it, if you kind of go, like, you can kind of, like, feel your sinuses fill up almost, which yeah. is pretty fun. Yeah, you're dead on. Um, you kind of delivered me right to the point I was trying to make is that the tapir has really poor eyesight. If you look at their little eyes, they're tiny, they're beady, and they're often like kind of there's corneal clouding, which inhibits the amount of light that can get into their eyes. So they have really shitty eyesight, but their sense of smell is great because they've got this like crazy proboscis. But also they use this flamen's response as a means of smelling. So they'll just kind of be walking through the forest, slowly eating. And then they'll just see them kind of throw their, and they like literally like hold their little snouts up in the air, exposing their front teeth, and then are able to catch smells, pheromones, for instance. So they're able to detect females in estrus. So females that are ready to mate. And that they produce a particular smell and the tapir is able through this flamen's response to detect that. But I do love that flamen is actually a German verb for to bear the upper teeth or to look spiteful. <laughs> oh my God. Of course. I thought it was just named after some German dude. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's actually a verb, which I love to look spiteful. It's Isn't so it? Funny. It's spelled like F L E I H M A. H N or some <laughs> you're close. There's like a lot of consonants. It's F L E H M E N. 
Fleming's response. Yeah, there's so many consonants. I know. It's really, it's so funny. So, Mike, I want you to, if you have your phone or something handy, I want you to just quick, Always. quickly do a Google image search of tape your teeth. And listeners, please do this as well at some point. So tapir spelled T-A-P-I-R. And then just look. <laughs> wow. That's a gummy smile. It's a very gummy. And they have like the funniest grills. Like yeah. some have straight, very full teeth, full smiles. Others look like an orthodontist stream. Right. They are. <laughs> Wait, they're I like so this. Funny. I, there's a baby one, Meredith, that I'm holding up to the screen right now. <laughs> He's practicing. He's practicing. Well, I think part of what makes it so goofy is that this prehensile proboscis has sort of like a, <laughs> it, it kind of peels away like the upper lip, you know, yes. almost. Yes. So you're really seeing like all the way back. Yes. And their teeth kind of look oddly human. They 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 have kind of square little teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, this is the Google image search that keeps on giving. So everyone do yourselves a favor. Google. <laughs> Ew. This dude's got his like nose going up and then his bottom jaw going down. He's really getting into his flamens. Yeah, this is from Reddit. This is definitely photoshopped. <laughs> and I'm not mad about it. No, it's great. It's do, do yourselves a favor, everybody, and look up tape your teeth. But anyhow. Like I said, they don't they don't see very well, but they do smell quite well. And actually, they're very, very, very good swimmers. Um, so they like to kind of root around um, using that proboscis again, that prehensile proboscis to pull up vegetation under the water. Also, they use their little proboscis as a snorkel. It's like perfectly equipped oh my for God. that. Adorable. I, I know. It's so cute. Um, and then also, I mentioned that they're kind of shy they're not preyed upon super, super duper frequently because their means of defense are so good. So they've got that camouflage. They've got that super heavy bite with those super sharp teeth. Um, and then also they can hang out for a long time in the water. They're very comfortable there and it's a great refuge for them as well. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, that being said, the, they are, I believe the Malayan um, tapir is in fact, endangered, and that mostly comes from deforestation, essentially just humans encroaching on their natural habitat. So moving away from that to get into something a little bit more fun and sexy, tapir love typically happens in April, May, and June, so in the springtime, and the gestation for these little babies is super long. It's like 390 days to 395 days. So that's like... Wow, it's yeah, it's so over long a time. year. That's like fourteen months. Yeah, so that's a long gestation period. Um, but again, they are big creatures. So the long, the larger the creature, the larger the gestation. Uh, they give birth to one offspring, um, and that usually happens if all conditions are correct every two years. And actually, the babies of all species are born with those really cute, like Bambi stripes. So if you can think of the markings on a young deer, Bambi, 
Um, they've got their kind of caramel colored fur, but then they've got all those white stripes. And I would assume the camouflaging is very similar in that this camouflaging works in, as the article said, the dappled light of the forest. Ooh. Isn't that pretty and poetic? The dappled light. A little dappled light. <laughs> the dappled light of the forest falls gently on the young tapir. And then you consider them and how goofy they look with the, their little snout raised in the air, burying their teeth. <laughs> it's just too much. Yep. And they have a lifespan of about 30 years. So they can get up there. They can get up there. But that's, I mean, that's the, my general rundown of the Malayan tapir. Super cute. Super fun. Look at all the pictures because they are goofy. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, Meredith, that was really enjoyable. Thank you for that. I feel like... Oh, you're welcome. I know so much more about the tapir. I feel like that was kind of a hole in my knowledge in Unjulet Squad. I was always like, don't really know what the tapirs are all about. <laughs> so I'm glad to have rounded out our sort of Unjulet Squad knowledge. I think we've... Yeah. I think we've now hit all of the families of the Parasodactyla. If we've talked about horses, well, it'd be rhinos, all of the ones... and tapirs, yeah. the extent... Right. Parasodactylas. Right, exactly. So that's fun. I feel like we just checked off a major box in our taxonomy achievement chart. But it's kind of sad, though, that, you know, we've checked it off. But that doesn't mean that one day you couldn't come along and do the Baird's tapir or, you know, the Brazilian tapir. Oh, no. I think that's one of the things <laughs> that's so great about this is that it's our independent animal journeys that are happening simultaneously. <laughs> right. You know. Exactly. Well take a break let's yeah let's do it okay it's tough finding the right hat when you're a cormorant you're not kidding the unique occipital crest of the cormorants simply isn't considered by most avian headwear designers the unique musculature of cormorants which increases their chomping power should not also limit their fashion which is why brand clubby is thrilled to announce cormorant caps Designer headwear for the Philacrochoricidae and Anhingidae families. Brand Clubby continues its tradition of creating excellent products for all extant creatures, pairing with famous designers including... Vulture Wang. Michael Boers. Alexander McQuaga. Kiang Lagerfeld. Coco Kamel. And even Walter Warthog. Oh, I love all of Brand Clubby's dank collabs with Walter Warthog. Myself also. Log into the Brand Clubby web portal today for access to exclusive fashions that are sure to impress across the entire coastal region. Use code OCCIPITALCREST15 for 15% off at checkout. We've arrived at another scintillating segment of Animal Magazines. It's always so spooky getting here. It's <laughs> starting to make more sense as we're in this sort of autumnal vibe that's instantly upon us. Yes, know? yes. The world of magazines, the world of periodicals is very spooky. Très spooky. So what have you got for me, Mike? 
Well, Meredith, all this talk about pawns got me thinking about pawns. Oh so my God, I, me too. No way. Yeah. I've examined Pond Trade Magazine. <laughs> Is that the one that you did? No, I did oh. Aquascape Lifestyles. <laughs> oh my God, perfect. Okay, well, I'm glad that we're both thinking a lot about pawns right now. <laughs> Pond Trade Magazine is... I guess it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a magazine for the pond trade. A a recent article from June of 2020 called Language of Koi, Preventing Koi Theft, discusses different thievery tactics that are used by koi thieves and talks about instances where people arrived and told whoever they encountered, like, oh, we're with the fish company. We're supposed to pick up some of these fish or sick, so we're taking the sick ones out of the pond. And they stole 400 koi <gasps> out of the pond. Oh, my gosh. Which is ridiculous because koi are actually very expensive. I don't know if you knew this. I did not, actually. What are we talking? Well, a typical pond quality koi can range from 10 to to $100, depending on the size. Oh, wow. And okay. you can spend, you know, several thousand dollars on a breeding pair. Wow. I know. And so a theft of 400 koi then is really quite a substantial theft. And so it talks about how to obscure the overhead view of your koi pond with trees so that thieves can't find your koi pond on Google Images and then come and steal your koi. Oh, my gosh. So these are human thieves. These aren't like heron thieves. No, I was thinking it would be heron, but it was. these are definitely <laughs> human thieves. It's saying create additional obstacles like large plants and tall grass that help conceal the ponds or prevent access to the pond from a public location. Oh, You can put thorny plants around the perimeter. I, I'm just here to tell you, man, life's pretty intense out there. If you're theft proofing your koi pond, you know what I mean? Like, like, I guess respect. I think it's reasonable to be concerned about that. You know, neighbors steal koi colleagues or acquaintances who see an opportunity to make a quick buck might steal the koi. Oh my gosh. You have to deter your koi nappers. This is insane. The pond keeps getting deeper. I don't think that I'm the target audience for Pond Trade Magazine. I think that I'm <laughs> not quite as much of an alarmist as the typical reader. Right. Not to pass judgment. I just, I can't get over this, like, world that I've just never considered of pond enthusiasm. Sure. Yet again. And I think Pond Trade better look out because I think they've got a competitor on the market in the form of aquascape lifestyles which claims that it's the only water gardening magazine you need (laughs) so mm, okay the heat is on it sounds like this might be more my speed yeah and i think this is actually i think it's a publication that's not like a magazine you could find at the library i actually think it's like a big glorified endorsement for what i think aquascape is this pond company and i think it's like their publication but That being said, I will give them a lot of credit. The most far back issue I could find was from summer of 2019, but that was only in digital editions or digital issues. And somebody has spent a lot of time, not only on like the graphics and like the layout of the like quote unquote digital magazine itself, but like even like the user interface was just very clean. It was like nicer than most of the things I use for like 
reading ebooks online. I was very impressed. It was like oh. very slick. But we're not talking about that. And I also think it's um This is not a graphic design podcast or a web design podcast. It certainly is not. <laughs> no. But I think this might be Aquascapes, I think is maybe more geared towards like water gardens as opposed to more like animals or creatures. But I will say this in the spring summer 2020 issue, there is a big feature called Are Your Fish Healthy? And it kind of includes this like big diagnostic chart where it kind of lists the, the weird fish symptom and tells you, you know, what it could be caused by and then we'll give you some sort of like either a product they sell or some other advice about how to treat this so i learned a lot about fish maladies some of which include fins rotting away which could be due to what's called fin rot fin rot gross oh and then um there's also bulging eyes which is caused by i think like a bacterial infection and then there's swim bladder disease and that's like affects the fish's ability to float like come up to the surface to like eat or I don't know it's all very intense and I think I just it stresses me out to think that a fish could be so far along or advanced in like one of these infections that their fins start to rot like and they could only be diagnosed or in when the fin is visibly rotting but think about how much pain the fish is going through up to that point right it just like really stresses me out these fish maladies <laughs> yeah it's a good day to not have a ray fin that's what i say <laughs> it's not terrigy wow well i mean that's really all i have but for any of yeah. you looking to get into pond enthusiasm there's at least two resources out there for you <laughs> Sure. I feel like my resource is better if you're going for like a kind of corporate pond management, maybe like a landscaping company maintaining a pond at a facility or something like that. Yeah, it seems much larger scale. Then maybe pond trade is better. But if you're looking for a sort of like homeowner pond refurbishment yeah. sort of thing, then Aquascapes is right. better speed. right. Meredith, hilarious. <laughs> this is the Nose episode and the Pond Enthusiasm magazine review episode. Sure is. We've done it again. Texana, you. Texana, we. Texana, who? Taxana, me. Kingdom. Animalia. Plants are for posers. Philo. Cordata. Spines are divine. Class. Mammalia. Furry. Milky. Order. Macroskelly day. Elephant shrews. Family. Macroskelly D day. Welcome to the nose zone. Genus. Rancosian, the checkered and their biggins. Species. Chrysopagus, the golden rumped elephant shrew, the largest species of the elephant shrew family. No, is this like a nose-heavy episode? It's a nose-heavy episode. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> we are just focused on the nose. <laughs> the nose, nose. Oh, my God. And this is the take another look at that snout. Yeah, take yes. another look at that snout. Kingdom, animalia, plants are for posers, phylum chordata. We have spines, our vertebrates. 
class mammalia, all of our mammals, fuzzy, furry, friendly, milk-bearing, live young, generally. Subclass, theria. Clade, eutheria. Infraclass, placentalia, superorder, afrotheria. <gasps> Afrotherians! We're back with our Afrotherians. It's the nose zone. This is like the best episode ever, Meredith. It's We have undulates and afrotherians together Two we're very nose focused this is a good a good episode to what i was saying earlier how there's frequently a new world and an old world division and then sometimes uh, sort of asian division the afrotheria clade is african specifically african mammals it's a clade meaning that they have a common ancestor so we have golden moles we have elephant shrews we have tenerecs we have aardvarks Hyrinxes, elephants, yes. sea cows, and several other extinct clades. Yes. I very specifically remember the Kratz Creatures episode where they talked about all of these. And they're like, can you believe that the Hyrax is related to the manatee? And I was like, whoa. And I love that today, how many years later, a good like 25 years later, and I am still just as like blown away by the Afrotherians. Was this like the um, jazz fusion supergroup of animals? Yeah, yeah. I've been thinking about this a lot, clearly. <laughs> and so I think that the elephant shrew plays piano. I think it's if it's a trio, right? Uh-huh. I would like to put the elephant shrew on keys. I would like to put... The elephant on piano. Because we all love tone clusters. Don't we all? <laughs> I would put the tenerec on the drum, and then I would have the aardvark appear as a sort of woodwind soloist. <gasps> oh, aardvarks with flutes. Cute. I know, just with that little mouth, just like <laughs> holding it way out there at the tip of their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Animal bands. Putting together animal bands is like my great unsung hobby. That is literally a new segment that we just came up with. You heard it here first, folks. Look for it in future episodes. <laughs> okay, so we're in the super order Afrotheria, and then we get to the order Macroskeletae, which is when we are dealing with elephant shrews. Okay. So elephant shrews are small. They're quadrupedal. They're insectivorous. They only eat insects mm -hmm. and they're mammals. They look like rodents or opossums. They have scaly tails, long snouts, and legs that are quite long for their size. It says here, which are used to move from one place to another like rabbits. Wait, as opposed to any other? I know, right? <laughs> Quadrupedal. <laughs> the order Macroskeletae. Now we have 20 species of elephant shrews in that order that are in six genera. And three of those genera only have one species. Okay. They're monotypic. Gotcha. So at this point, I just kind of want to circle back, take a step back. A rabbit step back. Take a step back in our text facts and point out that shrews are generally not in the superorder Afrotheria. So that's really a big part of the distinction. But then also the order is different. And so the elephant shrew is not a true shrew because... Shrews are in a different order, Uleopatyphla, and then true shrews are in the suborder Soricomorpha. Right. Which we know because we've talked about sh fucking shrews and moles before. Wait, are Desmonds in there? I think they are, right? I feel like they are. And then my star-nosed mole was yes. in the yes. Uleopatyphla 
Yes. Truly fat and blind. Yes. So because of the Afrotherian superorder, because the common ancestor is, you know, further up the chain, the taxonomy tree, if you will, then the order, the elephant shrews are not classified in that way. So I think that's interesting. Got it. That is like, yeah, very interesting. The, and, and in fact, they are more closely related to elephants, although that's not where they get their name. They get their name, well, they do get their name from elephants, obviously, but the name is because of their superficial resemblance to the elephant with their sort of, right. with their elongated proboscis, their nose. Mm-hmm. And it's a sort of perceived resemblance. And I think it's a way of being like the one you know, the little shrew with the big nose, with the longer nose. That I think that's wiggly the, nose. The elephant of the shrews, you know, I think. Right. Is. Just like the tapir would be like the elephant of the parasodactyla, I guess. Yeah, I'll take that. The cheeky teethy. <laughs> take another look at those teeth. I will also say that this phylogenetic analysis has underscored this relationship between the shrews and the elephant shrews so that's fun yeah (laughs) it's even been proven genetically i guess wait hold on i think that whizzed by me too fast sure that your phylogenetic analysis shows a relationship between elephant shrews and true shrews no i may have said it wrong okay so as already stated the relationship between the elephant shrew is and the elephant is closer than the relationship between the elephant shrew and the shrew. Ah, there it is. Okay, gotcha. That has been confirmed by phylogenetic analysis. I see. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah, no, I know. It was a lot. It's a lot of words. I'm very confidently using these words today, too. Hey, fake it till you make it. Honey, (laughs) who you telling? (laughs) So generally, the elephant shrews are widely distributed across the southern part of Africa, Mm-hmm. And they're not necessarily common anywhere, but they can be found nearly everywhere, if that makes sense. Ooh, what a what a mark of distinction. I'm common nowhere, but I can be found everywhere. Right. <laughs> I mean, you can find them in the Namib Desert, and you can go to South Africa on a boulder-strewn outcropping or a th- <laughs> thick forest, a semi-arid mountainous country in the far northwest of the continent. They're pretty adaptable. Yeah, and then even the Somali elephant shrew went missing from 1968 to 2020, but was rediscovered by a group of scientists. In 2020? Uh (gasps) Uh-huh. There's a redeeming element of 2020! I know. Yay! Wait, Mike, how did they find them? Well, Meredith, they simply just looked in Djibouti. (laughs) Okay, I can't. Because <laughs> ever since I learned about the existence of a place called Djibouti, I've wanted a reason to like legitimately talk about Djibouti. Oh, okay. And I'm sure there's many reasons, but like, you know, other than going to like look for those reasons, which, you know, now maybe I will do lines of inquiry, right? But this has come up organically on our animal podcast that happens to be taking place in like the shittiest year ever. And I'm learning that the elephant shrew was rediscovered or this particular species of elephant shrew was rediscovered in 2020 in Djibouti. This is great. Hey. This is great. What can I say? I'm just... This is great. I think that a really fun part about this, Meredith, is (laughs) 
how, you know, we've arrived at these moments of synchronicity and like <laughs> today's the nose episode and we're talking about something that you really wanted to talk about. All my dreams are coming true. I do love it. So uh, now we get, you know, further down the chain, the family macroskelly today. I'm not quite sure if that's a further distinction from the order of elephant shrews. Now we get down to the genus. Remember, there were six, I believe, genera. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, six genera. Our genus is Rhine. I'm I Rhine Cocyon. R H Y N C H O C Y O N. Rhine Cocyon. That would be my guess. Of the elephant shrews, this genus is the largest ones, the giant elephant shrews, so called. <laughs> And then the species is the golden rumped elephant shrew, which is found in northern coastal areas in and around Arabuku Sokoki National Park, Mbasa, in Kenya. Okay. Mbasa is a major port city and tourism destination. It's considered the quote unquote second capital of Kenya in all but name. Mm-hmm. I have encountered Mbasa recently just randomly on like silly shows about shipping because it's such a major shipping hub. I know. (laughs) And actually, as coffee uh, connoisseurs, perhaps, enjoyers of of artisanal coffees, I would say it's a pretty safe bet without actually doing the research on this. But it's likely that the coffee that is shipped out of Kenya would pass through Mbasa as a port city. That would make sense. The golden rumped elephant shrew has long, muscular rear legs. Oh, maybe that's where the rabbit thing comes from. I think it, I think, yeah, I think probably, or maybe it just kind of the way it propels itself, you know, like kind of pushes itself forward with its hind legs, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because the forelegs are short and less developed, and it does get pretty fast. It can reach speeds of 25 kilometers per hour, which is about 15 and a half miles per hour. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think I get, I get the, I get the rabbit comparison. Yeah. Now it's about 11 inches in length and weighs about a pound, 1.2 pounds. Typically the tail is largely black, except the last third is white, but then with a black tip. (laughs) And then the snout is long and flexible. Well, Oh, we know. (laughs) But, I mean, but do we, though? Because they are monogamous. And both the male and the females defend overlapping territories. Meredith, let's talk about elephant shrew romance. I, I was hoping you'd get there eventually. So they're kind of, you know, classic hopeless romantics, generally. They're monogamous. They will defend overlapping territories, the males and the females. It seems to me like they live separately, though. They maintain separate homes. Mm -hmm. And the male territory tends to be a little bit larger than the female territory. They mate year-round. The ladies give birth to one young in approximately a 42-day cycle. And then Hmm. it's pretty quick for the newborns. They leave the nest after two weeks. And then five days after that, about... They are fully independent and they don't need their parents anymore. So it takes less than three weeks for the baby to totally just peace out. Crazy. Yeah, I know. So fast. And then the male does not get involved in any of the parental care. Okay. Okay. That happens sometimes. I found a 
article, a scholarly article called The Adaptive Significance of Monogamy in the Golden Rumped Elephant Shrew. And it noted that they are primarily monogamous, but males may occasionally solicit extra pair copulations from neighboring females. And if a resident male disappears for any reason, a male may annex that territory, so to speak. Wow. You know, air quotes, annex that territory. (laughs) Lay that And so then it goes on to say that the males provide no direct paternal care. The adaptive significance of monogamy is unclear, which I think is interesting because it would... It would imply that monogamy is an adaptation so that both parents are involved in the raising of the child, so to speak. Okay. And that in a species where that's not the case, the adaptive significance of monogamy appears unclear. But maybe there was something in the history of the elephant shrew where there was a period of disease or something like that, like a transmissional, like a, a sexually transmitted shrew virus. Yeah. Who's to say? Yeah, anything's possible. I mean, just think about the noses on these things. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's noteworthy that the female elephant shrews undergo undergo a menstrual cycle similar to humans and is one of the few non-primate mammals to do so. In the 1940s, they were used to study human menstruation cycles. Wow. Yeah. The mating period lasts for several days, and then the pair will return to their solitary habitats. Um, it's diurnal. It lives in densely vegetated forests. It avoids clear open areas to avoid predators. They'll have up to six nests at a time and alternate where they sleep with no pattern for the hunters to follow, which made me think of both cicadas and bobcats. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. And they spend about 80% of their day looking for grasshoppers, beetles, etc. If it sees a predator that's too close, it will run away. But if the predator is further away, it will slap the leaf litter, which lets the predator know, hey, buddy, I see you. Oh, I wonder if any other animals engage in that. But what is that? I guess what is the end result of that? The I see you. I think it's maybe that the predator kind of just, you know, goes like the predator's cover is blown. Got it. Okay. Because now all the other creatures are also aware that something's happening. You know what I mean? I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotcha. Oh, that's so fascinating. I wonder what other creatures do that. Or if that's just a primarily an elephant shrew adaptation. Hmm. Yeah, I'm curious. They're endangered, fragmented oh. forest environments, anthropogenic factors, stochasticity. Wait, what is the, what's the second thing you said? Anthropogenic factors. That's the first time I've encountered this term. Okay. It just means originating in human activity, and it's chiefly used in terms of environmental pollution and pollutants. So in a lot of ways, it sounds like they are threatened in similar ways to the tapir, and that it's human causes that are um, resulting in their endangerment as opposed to any sort of like increased predation or right anything right. like that. I would say generally across most creatures that is the case. Yeah. The endangered issue is more anthropogenic factors. Gotcha. Anthropogenic. Uh Meredith, do you have any other questions? Oh my goodness. I just 
just very large questions about like how do we get from elephants and manatees to these little non-shrews and it's just I've I can tell you I've been I've been pondering this for literally like decades this particular evolutionary goof em up that is the afrotherian experience yeah I shouldn't say goof em up it's clearly not a goof em up there's like reasons behind all of these things but it is just very odd considering like the vast size difference the morphology of these creatures it's just endlessly fascinating to me yeah myself also i think that's kind of one of the founding tenets of <laughs> the dalmatian station absolutely well let's take a break uh maybe we can listen to some afrotherian tunes yes i would love nothing more Charlene, that bow in your hair is unbelievably adorbs. Oh, why thank you, Darlene. And thank you for noticing. It's not every day that us chimps get recognition for our fashion choices. Well, that bow of yours would be pretty hard to miss on account of it being huge and covered in rainbow skulls. You sure are a fashion trailblazer. Darlene, you are too much, but I certainly can't claim all of the credit most of that should go to Brand Clubby. Brand Clubby? Aren't they the visionaries behind those other splashy animal fashion lines like puma purses or shell bells, decorative notions for mollusks? Oh, and rad wrist wraps for warthogs? They're the ones, Darlene. Brand Clubby takes their mission of leaving no creature unfestooned very seriously. Wow. I'm just so impressed that even us chimps finally have a reason to strut our stuff. You can say that again. With Brand Clubby's new Chimp Primps accessories for chimpanzees, your catwalk options are limitless. What are some of your fashion goals, Darlene? Well, um, I have always wanted to see what I would look like in a hot pink cowboy hat. Oh, or would I want to show my tougher side with a studded black leather newsboy hat? Oh, wow, Darlene. Those are some bold choices. But you know what? It's your sartorial world when Brand Clubby is your outfitter, and they've got you covered. Literally. Charlene, you've changed my life. Thank you. No, thank Brand Clubby. And if you use code CHIMPPRIMP at checkout, you'll save 15%. Happy chimp primping, Darlene. I'm doing the Feynman response. I'm like, <gasps> Feynman. <gasps> Wait, Flayman. Flayman's response? Flayman? Sure. <laughs> I can feel my whole nasal cavity just coated with a thin layer of oat. I smell some pheromones, but I also smell oats too. Yeah. Okay. We're yeah. in the feedback. feedback. Yep. <laughs> and someone's in estrus, but it's not me. <laughs> uh, no comment. Okay. So, Gina from Telluride wants to know, does your voice change when you talk to a cute animal, or do you play it pretty cool? I mean, mine changes. There's no all all pretense of cool, just drops. 
if there's a cute animal around, I will immediately uh-huh. go into like, oh, da da bobby doggy da doggy. I have seen that something like that. <laughs> yeah, I have I have definitely seen that happen. I play it a little bit cooler than you do, Meredith, but my voice definitely does change, which is the answer to Gina's question. My voice totally changes, and I do not successfully play it like super cool. Yeah, you know, I try to play it cool. But I don't, I don't really get that cool, honestly. Could you give us an example of your cute animal voice? Do you think you could replicate it? Hi, Reginald. I like that. Thanks. It is. It does still have a modicum of cool, because yeah, it's definitely trying to be cool, but it's you know. You're still using like English words, and you're not devolving into like a series of squeals or just. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. So our fish position is Meredith does definitely change her voice. Yes. And does not play it cool. And that I play it slightly cooler than Meredith, but I still do change my voice. Yes. Perfect. Ding, 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 ding. Ding, ding, ding. Right. Peter from Flavortown, Ohio asks, how does a typical ant feel about a typical Monday? <sighs> I mean, do ants have weekdays? Hmm. Interesting. So this is more a question about ant timekeeping. Yes. Or ant conception of time. Uh Uh-huh. And is it like one of those things where like the smaller you are, the like maybe time moves more slowly or does it move more quickly because you're small and your life is presumably shorter? Yeah. I mean... I wonder. And I'm also now curious about ant labor practices. Like, I think that, you know, regarding the ant's typical feelings about a typical Monday implies that there are two days off. And I don't know that an ant gets that. Yeah. I don't know that ants get days off. Huh. There's always marching to be done. Well, but what if we consider this as more of like a a metaphorical ant, you know, like a sort of worker ant? I think that's really the nexus of Peter's question is like, like uh, an ant wakes up and is like, "Ugh, I got to go to work. Are they excited to work or are they anti-work? Do they wish that they could just sleep in, that they could roll over and be as snug as a bug in a rug? Uh, wow. I mean, I would go so far as to say, you know, without the extra layers of consciousness that we are, we as humans are privileged to have. Maybe there isn't that self-reflexive quality. It's just, you're just driven by instinct and you wake up and there's no other option but to go to work because there's nothing else to do but to work. Right. Like, is there ant ant lounge time? Well, do ants have feelings? (sighs) This is a big clamshell of inquiry you've just pried open, Mike. Um, I I don't know. I think we're asking a lot of great questions, but I don't know that we can arrive at an answer. Yeah, me neither. I think that... I'm sorry, Peter, but I think... Uh, I think that this is too tough a question to answer. And that's not a bad thing. That just means, say it with me, lines of inquiry. Lines of inquiry. <laughs> Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. All right. So Freddie from Minneapolis asks, mate pair feed upon the three different Labrador retriever varieties, (laughs) the oft-discussed blonde lab, chocolate lab, 
and Black Lab. This is so tough because the thought of having to feed upon any of them is just the worst. But it's just an exercise. Well, I mean, I feel like this is the easiest mate pair feed upon we've ever had. I don't know, really? Yeah, I do. You mate with the blonde because they're more fun and it's like spunky and fun and goofy and goof maloof. Yeah. But then you pair with the black lab with that more austere sort of stoicism. Yeah. Which is good. I mean, they're still fun, you know, but they're not as goof maloofs. I feel like Mm -hmm. a blonde Labrador would get you into trouble over time if you were married. Yeah. Yeah. Paired with that. True. Creature. And then you feed upon the chocolate lab. Because they're chocolate. Hoping that (laughs) it tastes a little chocolatey. And also, you know, they're mopey. Like, don't harsh my mellow, bro. You know what I mean? Like, just from an objective standpoint, I'm not excited. I'm never excited in the mate pair feed upon to feed upon any of the creatures. Right. But in this particular situation, I would rather feed upon the chocolate Labrador. The only thing that I would switch is I might mate with the chocolate lab and feed upon the blonde lab, but probably not. Yeah, because there is some allure, I think, to like, you know, the conquest of the the sad, quiet ones. Sure, you know? sure. I think there is something to be appreciated there, but it's definitely not something you'd want to like end your days with. You know, you wouldn't want to live out your days with the mope mope. Nope, nope. Nope, nope. So, yeah, I think ultimately I am fully in agreement with you, Mike. Though we could do a little switcheroo with the blonde and the black, potentially, but mm, probably not. Meaning you'd consider pairing with the blonde lab? Oh, no, that's not what I meant. I meant what you said. You could potentially mate with the chocolate. Sure. Feed upon the blonde. Yeah, mate with the chocolate and feed upon the blonde. That's the toss-up, but I just think that given that choice... Definitely yeah. mate with the blonde lab. Right. Eat upon the right. chocolate lab. The chocolate lab would probably just sit there being like mopey. Yeah, we don't we don't need that. Yeah. Different strokes for different folks though. You know. Yeah. Not to sure. yuck yeah. anybody's yeah. doggy young here. But. Yeah. No, this is a this is it's about the individual's answer to yes. this question. The official position of the fan of the animal fan club is not the official position of every individual in the world. That would just be silly. That'd be very silly. All right. Well, I think we did it though. Ding. Yeah. Ding. 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 Keep the questions coming. Animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. And have a great week in animals. Take another look at that snout. Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another me.